You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. First Peter chapter 3. Listen to these words. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for your hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah." While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You may be seated. You read a passage like this and you realize why uh, a lot of people don't want to preach verse by verse through the Bible. There's not a lot of coffee mug verses in this little section of Scripture. But there is something that is being pointed at over and over, and you probably picked up on this as Peter is speaking to exiles that are in hope. Exiles who are not home yet. They're living on the fallen planet. They are dispersed because of uh, tribulation. They've been pushed out of what would be home and familiar to them. And they're living in broken bodies with broken hearts and broken minds, waiting for the day when Christ Jesus will return, when they get to come home and be at rest, physically at rest, but also emotionally, spiritually at ease and at rest. And in the meantime, they're going to suffer. We, like them, are going to suffer. We're going to be betrayed by friends. We're going to be shunned by those we hoped would invite us in. We're going to be less than we hoped we'd be in and of ourselves. We will disappoint ourselves. We are exiles living in hope in a broken world. We've got to be prepared for the fact that this life and following Jesus means following the one who went to a cross and said, take up your cross daily and follow me. And that if we would look for a moment like fools because of our faith in Jesus Christ, if we would look like those who are living absolutely foolishly because we've put our hope not in this life, And not in our strength and not in our money, but in the next life, in the one who has power, 
the one who has wisdom, and the one who has said, I am Emmanuel, God with you. But this would call us into a place of vulnerability. This would call us into a place of sacrifice. And that we might even look like fools for a moment, but that moment will go by quickly. And soon he will be revealed and we will be home. And today I want to invite you to listen as Peter once again speaks about suffering as a sojourner, as someone who is passing through. Listen to what he says. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I'm including verses 13 and 14a together because you know the original numbers weren't there, right? They broke these up the best they knew how. But I really believe that these thoughts go together where Peter says, 99 times out of 100, no one is going to hurt or attack or give you any grief if you prove to be zealous for what is good, if you are noble, if you are brave, if you are loyal, sacrificial. 99 times out of 100, no one will have any qualm with you whatsoever. And as you live on this earth in this way, prove yourself zealous for good. Be a good citizen. Be a good worker, a good neighbor, a good spouse, a good parent. Be that. Be zealous for that. This is our call. This is what he has told us to do in our lives. Similar to what Jeremiah said to the exiles living in Babylon, that you should live there, that you should dwell there, that you should plant gardens, that you should take on uh, children and let your children get married, and that you would pray for the welfare of the city, that their good is your good, and that's how we should approach our lives here as exiles. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Even if you do suffer, you're in good company. Which one of the prophets, when they spoke up for what was good, for what was right, which one of them was not hated? Which one of them did not suffer because they spoke up? They stood in the place where God had told them to stand. You're in good fellowship when you suffer, if you suffer, for standing up for righteousness' sake. It's not super popular to stand up and say that you want to stand in the same position where Jesus stood, that you want to speak not as one who's just trying to be mischievous or just trying to get aroused out of people, but to stand up and say, this is what the truth is. And you're going against the, the prevailing winds of culture. Peter said that to his generation. He could just as well say it to our generation and remember, this is how we need to approach Scripture, that this was actually written to those who had been dispersed in Asia Minor, who were about to suffer tremendously because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It was first written to them, but there are principles that are eternal that come out of this text, and they make application for us today. Be zealous for good. Be ready to suffer. There are times when it would be just a whole lot easier if he didn't include things like that. That we could just stand for truth, but kind of do it quietly. 
You know, not, not super in your face about any of it. And that's not my intention at all. But there are times when as Christians, just by standing where you stand with your faith out loud in front of the world, in front of our Lord, you're going to be hated. You're going to be uh, isolated and shunned. And these are times that we should expect as Christians who follow a Savior who went to a cross And so if you stand up and say, I will affirm every person, the dignity, the value of every person made in the image of God, but I will never affirm anything that looks like sin. I won't do it. You know, right now, if you stand up and say, I believe in traditional marriage, you will be shunned. You will be hated. You could lose your job. Okay. Peter says, if that's what happens as you follow your Savior, one, don't be surprised about it. He's going to tell you that later on in the next chapter. Expect that there would be opposition. Expect suffering. Expect that you're in good company when you do that. These are the things that we as Christians would rather not have to deal with. But then again, this is what it means to follow our Savior, to stand in the truth, to acknowledge him as truth, a person who is truth. If you stand up and say that these things that try to eclipse our core identity in Christ, our core identity, that we are a chosen race, Christians, chosen race. Do you see how that's elevated above every other label you could put on us? We are first Christian, a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy people. So when I start to hear things about race, when I start to hear things about gender, when I start hearing all of that, I want to go back to, but hold on, what is the core identity of those who have been saved by God and put their faith in Jesus Christ? Our core identity supersedes every other label that can come down on us. And because of that, We will sometimes be shunned. We will sometimes be excluded. We will be made fun of. We will be the laughing stock. And we will look like fools for a moment. We will look like those who just don't understand what's going on in culture and can't get it. Listen to what else he says. If you prove, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. But then he says this. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy. Let me just stop for a second, because if you suffer, if you get excluded, and and as a pastor, I have this weird thing where I'm like, I got like five stories I could tell right now of my kids, but I can't do that, right? Because preacher's kids will tell you pretty quick, hey, dad, can you not? like make my life an illustration in your sermon. I promise you that as Christian kids walking through the halls of public schools, engaged in public school activities, there are times when their faith in Jesus Christ has made them very much uncomfortable. And they have to make a choice. Do they live out loud or do they hide it? Well, they've chosen to live out loud. They've chosen to put their faith out in front of the world and say, if this Uh, earns me an isolation. The beauty of that isolation is that's where you get to know the Lord better. He says, do not be troubled by them. 
Do not worry about them, but instead honor Christ Jesus as Lord, as holy. Now, there's something here that I want you to get that I didn't know for a long time. See, because most of my early Christian life, um, I didn't even know it at the time, but I, w- I was so eager for people to like me. Just, just <laughs> It was driving a lot of how I interacted with people. What do I need to say? What do I need to not say so that I can be included, so I can be respected, so I can be liked? Got into my first church, and the church was growing. Plenty of money, plenty of people. And I don't know if you know this, but if a church has money and people, no one asks any questions about whether or not they're succeeding at the right things. Everybody just feels good, right? Okay, so for me, we had money, we had people, and uh, just beneath the waterline, about a foot beneath the waterline of that church was two groups, that didn't like each other. One group was kind of coming out of a little bit more of a charismatic uh, thing that was a little, a little bit younger. One group was coming out of a Baptist church that was wanted to keep Sunday school and hymns, and the two just didn't like each other. And so I'm the new pastor, and I'm getting to go to lunch with people and <laughs> being courted by both sides. And I'm like, what is going on? And I felt this pulling. It was like One had an arm and one had a leg, and they were just pulling. And what I could not see that was happening in my soul at the moment was I just wanted both sides to like me. I didn't understand that what I most needed, what you most need, what I most needed was the Lord's affirmation. It says here, do not be troubled by them. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Now, please hear this. Thought experiment with you for a minute. Okay, go with me. Don't, don't dial out now. Go with me. If, you, if I told you for the next 30 seconds, do not think of the color gray. Don't think of it. Don't think of space gray phones. Don't think of agreeable gray paint. Don't think of elephants. Don't think of prison gray. Don't think of gray. Okay, just don't think of gray. It's kind of tough to do, but what if I told you for the next 30 seconds, don't think of gray, but I want you to think of Texas barbecue, and I want you to think about brisket that's kind of greasy with onions and pickles and with barbecue sauce and all of that and something cold and delicious to drink. You tracking with me? A little easier to not think about gray when you can think about this? (laughs) Friends, I want you to hear this. If you don't think on Christ, you will think of them who don't like you. You will magnify, meditate, and fear the people who want to see you scramble because they aren't accepting you. But if you sit, and this is what I had to learn as a new pastor, go walk and talk to the Lord. Go ask him, would it be all right if you and I talk for just another few minutes? And you'll watch and you'll just listen as the Lord's affirming light glows on your soul and fills you up with his love, with his affirmation, with his kindness, with his gentleness, with his goodness. You will taste and see that the Lord is good. And guess what? The 
the people who don't like you in that moment would be very much like those who would have a BB gun shooting at an M1 tank. You're just not going to feel or hear that criticism in any way once the Lord's affirmation has settled on your soul. And friends, you were made for that. There's a seat at his table, and it's got your name on it. And you're invited to it every day to sit down, to eat, to drink, to talk to the king, to listen to your brothers and sisters laugh and eat with you and enjoy the good fellowship of God that will satisfy your soul. And guess what? Without that, without that fellowship, without that meal, you're like a beggar who hasn't eaten in days and you're ready to eat candy corn. Or or as one pastor said, you'd eat a well-done steak at that point. Right? Like, you, you'll eat anything, any affirmation you can get. And I'll tell you something, this is why you can't hear words like, do not, be, do not fear them, nor be troubled. Well, that'd be nice if you could just not fear people and their affirmation and, and, and their rejection, if you could just not feel that. Well, you know how you don't feel that? You sit in the presence of the Lord and let Him satisfy every deep longing that you have. And do it again tomorrow because he is good. Honor the Lord, the Lord Jesus as holy. And then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. See, now this is the awesome thing. Frederick Beekner said this, your freedom is peculiar and attractive. Your freedom is both peculiar and attractive. I want you to think about this. A person who has a satisfied, still soul in front of the Lord has something like a deep, deep root system that is ready for any drought or storm. It is anchored and it is grounded, as Paul says in Ephesians, that you are situated in a way that you can stand up to some of the storms that will blow through your life and stand firm. And people will see that. And it is peculiar to them. You don't seem easy to blow into the breeze. You don't seem pushed around. You don't seem scared. You have, because of Jesus, something so good. It's so good. It's so right. It's this. It's Mark 1.11. When the Father spoke to the Son, as He came up out of the baptism waters, He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, I want you to just imagine how that felt for Jesus at the start of His ministry. He hadn't done anything yet. He hasn't chosen the apostles. He hasn't he hasn't cast out demons. He's, done not, he's really not, he's not gone to the cross, fed anybody, done any of that. And the Father says, you're mine, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. You know how affirming that was for, for Jesus to hear his Father speak like that? What if he said that to you? Well, guess what he did? We're in Christ. That affirmation is ours And if you don't believe me, just keep watching. I'm about to unpack this for you and show this, but I just want you to hear this. You will have a hope that will seem peculiar and attractive to people. And Peter says, be ready. They're going to ask about it. 
They want to know how and why you stand firm. And when you don't stand firm, and when you crater and you cave in, then you'll meet the Lord in a deeper way, and you'll come out of it with a deep, full understanding of His grace and His mercy then. And He says, be ready. People are going to see this, and they're going to want to know why. Why are you able to, to stand firm when you used to scramble, when you used to try to white-knuckle everything and try to make it work and make people appreciate and like you? Why is it different now? The answer is right here. It's because the Lord takes note of me. And this is so good. He says that these people that are so eager to slander you, when they see your good works, when they see who you are, when they see you standing firm, when they see that you have been in resolve through all of the attacks, that they'll be put to shame when they've reviled you. They'll look and say, you know, gosh, this show's worse on me than all the terrible things I just said about you. He says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If God allows you suffering, and friends, he will allow us to suffer. We can't, we can't buy our, our way out of that. We can't shelter ourselves or our children from it. We will suffer in this life. If that's God's will for you, and if you're in a season of suffering right now, I just want to encourage you, one, it's a season. You don't have to live here. You might have to walk through it, but I would encourage you, you don't need to try and run through the season of suffering. You don't need to try to reverse your way out of it. It's not going to happen. You don't need to try to write a check or try to just make something up. You need to meet the Lord in your suffering. If it's his will that you suffer, ask him to be with you in the middle of the suffering. Ask him to show you his kindness, to meet you in the middle of this valley. This friend of ours told me years ago when we were going through some really hard things, and I said, gosh, I just don't understand why the Lord's allowing this. It's like we've already had a lot of hard years. It's like, come on, we just want like one season of chill, right, where nothing's blowing up. Listen, the Lord knew that about me, about my wife, about my kids. And this friend of mine said, something in you needed to die, and this is how God chose to kill it. Now, that's hard, but that's good. If you're in a season of suffering, something in you needs to die. And God is so enamored of you and so pursuing of you that he's not going to let you off the hook. He's going to see this conforming to Christ happen in your life. Something needs to die. For me, it was a lot of fear of man and a lot of self-reliance. I, I, I tend to rely on uh, gritty hard work. I tend to rely on my personality, on charm. I sometimes think that I've got, man, I've got this dad power. If I just try hard enough and just keep working, it'll, it'll somehow it will work. Okay, well, sometimes it's not going to. And the Lord is going to meet you in your valley. Well, keep watching. I love verse 18, just even how it starts. For Christ also suffered. Just stop for a second. <laughs> like right at the moment when you go, well, I don't like any of that. And that doesn't sound fair. He says, yeah, and Christ Jesus also suffered. You're following your king. 
He also knows the lonely, scary path of suffering for doing what is right. He knows what that feels like. He walked that path. He was rejected not just by his enemies, not just by his friends, but also his father turned his face away. It was the will of the father to crush the son for our sake. Jesus also suffered, and it says this, once he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So I just want you to hear this, because sometimes we miss this. He suffered once for sin. Between the Garden of Eden and the night where he was betrayed and the night, the next day where he was crucified, there had been sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, millions of animals slain in sacrifice, pointing forward to the final sacrifice, which was Jesus himself, that he was the final Lamb of God. There would be no need for another sacrifice once that final perfect sacrifice was made. No more sin has to be paid for by another animal death because Jesus paid the debt for us. He suffered once for our sins, past, present, and future. Friends, can I just tell you this? You'll hear me say this when I do communion often. Stop rehearsing your defeats. Stop reliving all of the shame and the guilt and the fear and the loneliness and things you wish you could do over Jesus suffered for your sins, for my sins. Okay? He paid that debt, eternal debt, to free us. He suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Isn't that good? See, this is called imputation. I want you to hear this. I, we can use the $3 words, and I want you to understand these theological ideas but this is the idea that Jesus had our sin imputed to him so that his righteousness could be imputed to us. He stood in a penalty for us. He was a substitute for us. He took our wrath. He took our penalty. And his righteousness was imputed to me, to you. You're not just forgiven. Do you understand that? It's not just that someone took all your, your, your sin and blotted it out. That's true, but guess what else? You were given the full righteousness of Jesus also. Now, this is good news. He did this so that he could bring us to God. He, in, in, in the original language here, it says that he brought us in in an active way. It's the idea that if you went to Buckingham Palace right now and stood patiently outside the gate and said, you know, I really always wanted to see inside there, and I'd kind of like to meet the king. I don't know. Where's the doorbell? Uh, you stand no chance. You can't go in unless someone who represents the king comes outside grabs you, walks you past the guards and the gates and all of the security and all that, and brings you in and says, I'd like to introduce you to the king. Because you don't have the authority. You don't have any ability to get yourself in there. But if someone from inside that court comes out, finds you, grabs you, and says, he's with me, she's with me, then you get to bypass everything. 
And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. How did he do it? What was the cost? The cost was his life. He came out and got us to bring us in, to make an introduction so that we might know our good and loving Father. And we might not just stay there for a few minutes, but that we might have a full righteous place in his presence because of Jesus. He brought us to God. Now, I just want you to hear this. You may or may not really even get this stuff unless you suffer. These will be things you'll agree to and assent to, and they won't really touch your heart until you suffer, until you face the loneliness, the discouragement, the shunning and the rejection of a world that hates God and starts to hate you, and then you meet God in this brand new way in the valley of suffering. And then you find yourself seated at the, at the king's table, enjoying his fellowship, enjoying his meal, And it's beautiful. And Jesus did that for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. I just have to tell you, what I'm about to read, there's been a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. You're never going to find this next verse on a coffee mug. It just really isn't something that you go, oh, that's super encouraging. But listen to this. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now that's a head scratcher a little bit, but let me just kind of summarize what I think would be helpful for you to know about this. Remember, when Jesus was dying on the cross, there was a man next to him that he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, that's a strange thing to say, one dying man to another. Hey, you know, what's coming next in in, in our future, I want you to remember me. Think how peculiar that is. I mean, we're both going to be dead in a couple of hours. If you had real power, maybe you wouldn't even be here. But somehow this man has come to faith in Jesus, believing that he is the key to my eternal security. And what does Jesus say to him? Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what happened? The body went into the tomb, but the spirit went into paradise. Right? So you have a loved one who believed in Jesus and their body has gone into the ground or or something like that. Maybe they were cremated, whatever it is. The body is dead. The spirit is in paradise with the Lord. And that's a beautiful thought. But there's something else. And we say this in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended into hell. Why do we say that? Well, Peter mentions it. He mentions it not only here, he mentions it in 2 Peter. He also mentions, uh, Jude mentions it. But there was apparently a group of angels, and he's referring back to Genesis chapter 6, when the ark was being made, and there were at that time a group of angels who transgressed their boundary as spiritual beings, and they saw the daughters of men, it says, and they found them attractive, 
and they took on human flesh. They probably were the first ones to ever possess a human man, and they went in and they took wives for themselves. These spiritual beings, these fallen angels, took on the human flesh through possession, and they went and took wives from among the attractive daughters of men. This is a terrifying thought for me as a father of many daughters. I'm like, oh man, that's a tough one to to have to wrestle through. Hey, buddy, I'm meeting you at the door here, and no, you know, like this is a, can you imagine this scenario? And in that moment, the anger of God was kindled. And for 120 years, the ark was being prepared, and the clock was ticking. The wrath of God was about to fall on sinful man, And he was going to wipe out mankind and the earth in a global flood. And that was a physical expression of something that was happening spiritually in heaven. The catastrophic destruction, everything that was happening on earth was mirrored in heaven. And God took these angelic beings who were fallen angels. He took them and cast them into a dark pit that is holding them to now for a day of judgment that is to come. Jude mentions it. Peter mentions it twice. It's all right there. Jesus went down, and he made proclamation, I won. I won. Remember what Satan had tried to do in Genesis chapter 3 was he wanted to overthrow the rule of God by getting Adam and Eve to sin. He ended up with a promise that Messiah would come someday. So he tries again here in Genesis chapter 6 that he's going to overthrow God again. Doesn't work. He tries again in the book of Esther to just destroy the Jews. He tries when Jesus is a toddler to destroy all the males of that time. He just is trying whatever he can to win. And when Jesus dies and his body goes into the ground and his spirit goes into paradise, he goes down and makes proclamation to the spirits that are now in bondage. By the way, that's the name of C.S. Lewis's first book where he tried to be a poet, and it didn't work. The book was called Spirits in Bondage. Jesus went and made proclamation saying, I won. I have victory. You ever seen like a really, really good uh, trick play in football where suddenly, you know, everybody's lined up and the ball is snapped, but nobody, the, the linemen don't rush forward, and suddenly the guy's just holding the ball, and then he just starts walking with it, looking at the ref, talking to him, and suddenly he takes off running, and everybody's like, what just happened? What just happened? I mean, that's not normal. Somehow, they just beat us. They just beat us. I have a sense that the disciples, the whole nation of Israel was looking for the Messiah to be a military victory, a military conqueror, to bring in that kind of victory. I have a feeling that as the disciples looked at this and said, wait a minute, are you going to bring the kingdom now? Jesus is saying, you don't understand. I'm aiming at something larger than the kingdom that you understand. Mine is an invisible kingdom. And that as Satan thought for sure, we won, right? We spit on him, we mocked him, we beat him, we killed him, and now his body is dead in the tomb, and they're celebrating, they're hoping for their victory because maybe they've won. Jesus comes down and says, I have just paid the sin debt for every sinner that will come to me. I have won. 
not just for myself, but for everyone who turns to me. They will find repentance. They will find forgiveness. They will find righteousness by believing in me. I just won. Jesus went and made proclamation. It says that this is the same thing that we could see right now when we look at baptism. Listen to this. Baptism corresponds to this. It now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me for a second. I want you to hear this. Baptism is corresponding to this. What's the this? The this is the flood and the ark. That there was a season of time where the wrath of God was due to fall any time. But there was an ark there. And if you would repent and turn from your sin, you could come safely into the ark and you would be okay on the day of wrath. When we get baptized, we are baptized into Christ. We are brought fully immersed out of the life that we had, fully immersed in Jesus. And in Him, we have safety from the wrath that is to come. Someday, the wrath of God will fall on this world. The windows of grace are open today. Well, guess what? Back in the days of Noah, when he was building that boat and looked like the biggest fool in the world because he's in a landlocked country building a boat, And everybody laughed at him and said, what's that for? And he told them about the righteousness of God. He told them about sin that must be repented of. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They said, you are an idiot. We will go about our busy lives with all of our desires front and center. Whatever we want to do, there is no God that's going to come get us. There's no rain that's going to come out of the clouds. There's there's nothing. And then suddenly, lightning bursts forth one day. And that deep rumble of thunder came, and their hearts were afraid, and it was too late. Listen to me, friends. Someday the Lord is going to come again. Someday He's coming. We will look like fools for a moment, telling people, no, there really is a God. He really is holy. You can't get to Him with religion, with trying to be a good boy, a good girl. You're not good enough. We need a Savior. We must turn from our wickedness. We must turn from our sin. We must follow the only one who can save us, Jesus Christ. And they're going to look at you and laugh at you, just like they laughed at Noah. But for those who see the holiness of God and the the depths of our sin, we know that Jesus is our only hope. And so when we come to him and we are immersed in him, we are baptized into the body of Christ, we are fully safe in Jesus That's what Peter says. This is a corresponding truth. He said, not just getting wet. You can take somebody and dunk them. That doesn't make them saved. That's just getting them wet. They might have dirt removed from their body, but that didn't make them saved. He's talking about real faith in Christ, real baptism into his body through faith. And those days of judgment are waiting, that great day of judgment, and the window is open now. So here it comes. We don't know how long we're going to live on this earth. You may die in one of these crazy highway, you know, people drive like crazy people around here, right? The bigger your truck, the safer you are, I think, you know. (laughs) We don't know when he comes. 
I hope and pray that he comes before I finish this sermon. I really do. I'd love that. We do know that he's coming. I want to invite you. Come deeper in. Come fuller in. Maybe some of you, you've never trusted Jesus. You've never said to him, I need you to save me. I can't save myself. I've tried. I've tried being better. It didn't work. Even your best efforts, you probably made it about seven or eight minutes before you go, ah, that didn't work. Or maybe you're a whole lot better than me and you made it seven or eight days. But here's the truth. Even on those seven or eight days, you weren't nearly as good as you thought you were. Your best efforts fell short and became repugnant in light of Jesus. The windows of grace are open today. Trust him. Believe in him. Get baptized fully into his body. And if you've not been physically baptized, we will baptize you. We will baptize. We don't have to wait. Like We'll go out there in that uh, creek and we'll just do it down there. We'll do it today. We'll figure out the towels and everything else later. I'll bet we could do it. If you want to get baptized, you just tell me. Tell Michael, we'll do it. Don't have this thought. Well, I'll do that someday. I'm going to get... Okay, I'm going to get really serious about walking with God, following God someday. Friends, you have no idea what's coming your way, and neither do I. And I can tell you this, the world makes no apology for asking more and more and more and more of you until you're fully owned by it. Jesus is the one who would give his life away that we might be free. Listen to this. It says that Jesus Christ, when he was resurrected, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, listen to this, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been what? Subjected to him. Now, I hope you can see what's happening here. How many times did he say that we should, as citizens, subject yourself to the governing authorities? As those who have masters or employers, subject yourself to them, even the ones that aren't any good, the ones that aren't even kind. Wives, that you would be subject to your husbands, that husbands would be subject to the Lord's leadership, that they might be that kind of husband, a gracious, kind, sacrificial, giving husband. Subject yourselves, and look at this. Every angel, every power, every authority has been what? Subjected to Jesus. He is king forever. Isn't that beautiful? We can live our lives as those who follow him and suffer as we do, knowing that he is the Lord Almighty, sovereign creator of all things, that he holds the circumstances of our lives in his good hands, and we can trust him. And if that would lead you to look like a fool, it will only be for a moment. And then he comes, or we go home, and that's glorious. I want this because it will honor Christ mostly. I want this in our church because it will glorify our King and our Lord. There's never a song that we sing that I hear someone exalting Jesus that something in me just leaps up and goes, yes, yes. That one song, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. I'm like, amen. Let him be exalted above everything It is so good for us to exalt him through our suffering in this world. But you know what else? It's good for us. He alone can satisfy us. He alone will build in us the root system and the the structures in our life that allow us to find joy no matter where we're at. 
no matter what our circumstance. Pray with me.